right, well, good to be with you guys here tonight. I want to be able to see you, so we'll get a little wakened up here with the bright lights. But I'm Pastor Dave, our young adult pastor, and I'm glad to be with you. Well, one of the most famous questions ever to have been asked within the history of the church was asked around the turn of the third century by one of our church fathers whose name was Tertullian. And Tertullian asked this question that Christians have been, have been discussing for centuries later, and it's this. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And what Tertullian meant by this question was, for people like Christians who have received God's word, the biblical message, do they need to be branching out to be reading philosophy or what role might Greek culture or other influences within the world play in their lives? What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Should we embrace culture or should we be afraid of it? Should we start to know what other people are talking and thinking about or should we keep ourselves guarded and protected against it? I was so grateful last week to hear Pastor Brian talk about how as we live on mission, one of the things that's necessary for us to do is to engage culture so that we are able to serve the city well, to love people. And the way that we can do that is by starting to know what people are thinking about and talking about. What are the books they're reading? What are the ideas that they're wrestling with in their mind? And what are they searching after? Because we know and deeply believe that the greatest answer to what anyone might be searching for is ultimately in Christ. And so we can help engage people better and engage our world, which might be Boston, by knowing what people are thinking about. We can engage them with Christ. So what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? A whole lot. And we actually saw the Apostle Paul as we've been going through the book of Acts, traveling to Athens and talking with these Greeks and knowing a whole lot about their culture and how it impacted their lives, of how the gospel, I should say, impacted their lives. Very powerful stuff. And so tonight I want us to ask a little bit of a different question. Instead of asking, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? I want us to consider this question. What does Athens have to do with greater Boston? In other words, when Paul went there 2,000 or so years ago, what does that story, what does that time and, and his engagement with that culture teach us about how we can live in our world and engage this city with the gospel of Jesus? And you might be here thinking, well, I'm just kind of checking out church, not sure if I'm a believer or not. And if that's you, we're so glad that you're here. But no matter where you are in your faith journey, I think when we get a safe distance removed from our world and look through the eyes of the Athen Athenians there in Athens, we can actually get a great picture into some things about our world and our life. And so we'll be asking this question, be thinking about the whole way through, what does Athens have to do with greater Boston? And it's not just if I should wear a toga or not for, for Halloween, okay? Probably not the greatest idea. So I'm going to tell the story tonight a little bit differently than maybe what you've heard before. We'll be going right through Acts 17 and discover what we can take from Paul's example with how he engaged the people of Athens and how we can apply that to our lives. So I'm going to invite you to come with me here tonight for this journey. Imagine being here with Paul. The city of Greece was a beautiful place. At the very center of the city was a big granite hill. It was called the Acropolis. And on the Acropolis was the worship center known as the Parthenon. It was dedicated to the goddess Athena, the giver of victory. It revolved, the whole city revolved around this place. Everything, part of life, was built up for it. People within this Greek world were very famous. You've probably heard some of the names before. Names like Alexander the Great. People of Athens like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. You've probably even studied some of the Greek mythology uh, in school or different places that talked about heroes like, like Hercules or, 
or uh, Oedipus here, or Odysseus, some of these different people, or some of the gods like Zeus, some of the gods like, uh, like Athena, like we talked about, or Apollo. These gods played a prominent role within the city, and as Paul made his way into Athens, he would have been absolutely shocked, maybe in awe a little bit of the beauty of these temples, but he also probably would have been a little mad, maybe a little saddened by the fact that there were idols and, and places of worship that were not for the God that he knew was the real and true God. And so Paul, when he got there, he probably would have started in a place called the Agora to start to meet with people here. I have a picture with me uh, that was taken a few years ago, actually what the Agora might look like today. It was the center of life, the marketplace. There was a whole lot of activity that happened here in the Agora. And probably nearby the Agora would have been the synagogue. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when Paul would go to an, another city, one of the things he would do is first kind of find his people. Who were the people that he related with best? And since Paul was a Jew by nature and heritage, he went to visit the Jews. And he didn't find that the Jews were real interested in, in living on mission here in Athens. A lot of them were shopkeepers and workers, and they were quite content just to be able to, to make money off these Athenians, to make money off these folks that were far from God and spiritually blind. And Paul became appalled, no, maybe the pun intended, but he became a little <laughs> disturbed by the fact that these people didn't care about how far from God many of these people were searching for all sorts of different gods. And so Paul kind of decided to head away from the Jews, and he decided to turn to the marketplace here, to the Agora, and talk about some of the, some of the ideas of Jesus with the leading thinkers of this day. A couple buildings are worth pointing out here in the Agora. One was called the Temple of Hephaestus, the Temple of Hephaestus. And he was, one of the, he was kind of the god of, of the craftsman. Let's see if we can get a shot of that. That's how it still looks today. It's an incredible shape. He was kind of the, the male equivalent to the god of Athena, who was the goddess there of victory. The Parthenon was built for her. Another building that's very significant, it was actually rebuilt uh, just about 50, 60 years ago, it was called the Stoa of Attalus. The Stoa of Attalus. Here it is right here. Actually, a bunch of Americans who were very much invested with Greek philosophy had this place rebuilt, and the Rockefeller family are the ones who kind of helped support that project. But what's interesting here is that this was the school, the place where the leading thinkers and philosophers of the day, where they would have studied and argued and debated, and they would have followed what was known as the Socratic method, the kind of way of studying that Socrates followed. And Paul would have probably dialogued in the same way with these folks. If you've ever studied Socrates before, you know one of his famous questions, actually really helpful for us today, is this. It is this question. Actually, it's a statement. He says, the unexamined life is not worth living for a human. The unexamined life is not worth living for a human. It's completely okay if you're like a dog, you know? You don't have to live an examined life. You don't have to live reflectively. You just got to go outside, you know, eat, do this. It's completely fine. But for people created in the image of God, us as human beings, Living a life where we don't think about ultimate questions and things that really matter, and if we're living well or not, that, doesn't, that isn't essential for us to live well. And so Paul would have come here to this place to engage in the dialogue and the debate of the day, and ultimately to tell people about the love and goodness of Jesus Christ, a powerful thing. And so he would have talked about Jesus, and he would have been talking about resurrection. Now, the two leading uh, schools of thought in this day were Stoic, the, uh, the philosophies of the Stoics and the philosophies of the Epicureans, okay? The Stoics and the Epicureans. The, Epic, uh, the Stoics, here's what they believed. They thought the mind, reason, was the ultimate. It was 
what we should be pursuing. Uh, they were really trying to live their lives in alignment with nature. And they were very much uh, about suppressing kind of emotion and feeling because they thought they would take us away from real truth in God. That's what the Stoics were about. The other group called the Epicureans are people we'd actually probably find a whole lot in today's world. The Epicureans, they believed that pleasure and happiness was the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate good. So uh, people like them had a mantra. You've probably heard this mantra before. If you have, I invite you to fill in the last part. And here's what the mantra was. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we, we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. I can imagine the Epicureans today, if they were going to be living, they'd probably be wearing those YOLO shirts you see a lot of people wearing. You know, you only live once. So, hey, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because, hey, tomorrow we're going to die, right? Let's just live it up, because that's what we're supposed to do. Life's short, right? So, hashtag YOLO, right? Now, please don't ever talk in hashtags. Just... <laughs> Anyways, even some of our poets and leading thinkers actually t took some of these ideas from the Epicureans and put them in their own songs. I'm a fan of Dave Matthews' band. Anybody a fan of Dave Matthews? A lot of people in here. You probably know his song, Tripping Billies. Anybody know Tripping Billies? Well, that song, the chorus actually goes, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. All right, never do a Dave Matthews impression again, note to self. <laughs> but he took that right here from the Epicureans. And that's what their life was all about. And so Paul would have engaged in dialogue with these folks and said, there's actually a lot more to the life than just what you guys are talking about. There's a whole lot more. And he talked about Jesus and he talked about resurrection. And these people started to find themselves a little offended by the way that Paul talked, a little put on the edge by some of the things that he called into question because his message was very subversive compared to what they were used to hearing. And so these people started to kind of laugh at Paul saying, this guy's like a babbler, you know? What, what does he know? He's talking about resurrection and that this guy, Jesus, actually rose from the dead bodily. That is just insane. Who in the world in their right mind would have ever believed that? They kind of mocked him, but they also felt a little threatened by him because if Paul was right, if this was true, if his reason was actually sound, then they would have to change how they lived. And so they decided to do something pretty radical. They actually said, hey, Paul, let's go up to this court of appeal. It's this place called the Areopagus. You know, it sits right beneath uh, the Acropolis where the Parthenon is. And we're going to kind of test these ideas out. And so Paul kind of maybe against his will gets escorted up this hill. There's a bunch of switchbacks as you come up to this hill. And you can see what the Areopagus is like. Here's a picture of it from actually taken from the Acropolis. And the Areopagus, basically it's two Greek words combined. Ares, which means it's the god of war, and then Pegasus, which basically means big piece of rock. And that's pretty much what that looks like, right? The Romans uh, actually named this Mars Hill. Mars was their uh, god for war. And so if you've seen churches by the name Mars Hill, they're naming their church and their, their whole ministry kind of after what happened on this site because it's that significant. And so you can see this, this, from this rock here, there was a stunning view of the entire city of Athens that it would have overlooked a very good place of prominence here. Let's get a shot here of the, of the view over the city of Athens from the Areopagus. This is what it looks like in today's world. Just amazing. And we happen to see some ridiculously good peop looking people up there too. If we can get a picture. Oh, how about that? <laughs> from the Areopagus. Yeah. But let's see what happens. So Paul gets up here and they place him and make him stand on this rock called the Stone of Shame. 
Sounds like a very welcoming place, right? They put him on the stone of shame, and then to be across from him was going to be this, persec- or this prosecutor, and he would stand on the stone of pride. And this prosecutor was going to basically test out Paul's ideas. Are these things true? Are these right? What are you saying? Because he's kind of creating a little bit of a stir, a little bit of buzz that's unsettling in the city. And so here's what the prosecutor began saying. He said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Kind of, you can hear the mockery a little bit in his tone, but you can also see, huh, if he's right about this, some things might need to change in our lives. And then Luke makes this great little note about the Athenians, and let's see if they sound a little bit like Bostonians or people here in America. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and hearing and telling whatever was new or talking about the latest ideas. So they wanted to kind of entertain what these latest ideas were. They were into what was new and what was happening. And then Paul gets to stand up in the meeting of the Areopagus and address them. And I can just imagine Paul just savoring this opportunity to speak at such a prominent place. This is a place maybe that Socrates would have spoken at before. And Socrates was very content to almost live in one place his whole life and minister there. But Paul... It was a little bit more radical than him. He went from place to place to place to place. Traveled more miles than any person in history. Paul's ministry and the suffering he endured was unprecedented. His boldness for the gospel led him to do things that no one had ever done before in history. And so now Paul gets to have his time at this place to share about Jesus' love here to these people. And here's what he says. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So he begins by saying they're very religious. And I think he actually meant that somewhat complimentary. You know, you guys actually do think there's something beyond this life, that there's more than just eating and drinking maybe. Maybe there's a little bit more to just going about your business, that you know that life isn't all about you. So he kind of gives them a little, little nod on the, you know, pat on the back, a little nod there saying, hey, you're religious. That's good. I'm religious too, but a little differently than you. And he says he looked at all these different shrines for all these different gods, and then these people in, the, in Athens were so concerned that they didn't uh, kind of upset any gods out there that they just built this, this shrine to an unknown god saying, hey, if we, all these other shrines and temples and places don't cover it, we got one just for everybody else, just to make sure our kind of bases are covered. And Paul says, hey, just how you guys have that inscription to an unknown God, well, let me tell you who that God actually is. That more that maybe you're after, let me tell you who it is. And here's what he says. I'm going to proclaim this to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Listen to the boldness of how he starts it out. It's instead of saying a God, as they would have talked about, one of many gods, he uses the definitive article here, the God. There's only one, and this God is the creator of everything. We don't need to divvy up who's in charge of what with all the different gods, who's the God of the craftsman, who's the God of the you know, war, who's the God of this or that. No, this God made everything in heaven and earth, and he's personal. He's personal. This idea that God could be known would have absolutely upset the Stoics. They thought God was kind of like this, this 
pantheistic kind of God who was like in every little thing. You know, part, God was part in the air, God was in the water, God was in all the elements of earth. But Paul's saying, no, God isn't in those things. He's with us, but this God is the one who made everything. He sustains everything, and he can be known. He's a personal God. He's not just distant, but he's near. And he says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. I just love that idea. A lot of us try and strive to please God and almost do enough good things so that ultimately God will be happy with us and then hopefully we'll make the cut and get into heaven. And that's what these people were trying to do in Athens. And Paul's saying, hey, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to do these things, but he loves you and he wants you. And then he says, he is the giver of life and breath and everything else. What did you do today to actually give yourself breath, to make sure you started breathing? Did you really think about, hey, I think today I'm going to start breathing? No. You just naturally did that, right? And so God is the one who can give and take away, and he is the source of our life and our breath and everything else. I loved how one of my seminary professors said that the mere fact that you have breath in your lungs today is proof that God has a purpose for you, that God wants you to be alive this very day. The fact that you are living and breathing, that's God's gift to you, and he wants you alive for this day. So what might that purpose be for you, for why he wants you on this earth to live this day? God is the source of life and breath and everything else. And then Paul says this, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places set for them and the exact places where they should live. I love this idea where... He says, God determined everything. Now, the Epicureans, they thought that everything was left up to chance. You know, eat, drink, and be merry tomorrow, we're going to die. So we don't really have any clue that there's any purpose to this life, that life is maybe ordered or structured, that there's any kind of direction to it. It's all just kind of random. Everything's kind of by chance. And maybe the cards will fall in your favor, or maybe they won't. And so we might as well just live it up, right? But Paul is saying... <laughs> Life has not, not left up to chance. No, in fact, life has been structured by God. He has a plan. He has a plan for all of us. Have you ever wondered why maybe you're alive in this time, living in this place right now? God has a purpose for that, and that's what he's telling these folks as well. And verse 28, I think, is brilliant, what he says here. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, this is powerful. Paul actually quotes a couple of their poets. A guy, one guy's name is Epimenides, and the other one is Aratus. And he says, while your literature has said this, and you guys understand this idea of living and moving and having all your being somewhere, well, God is the ultimate source of that. If you really want to live life, you've got to live it in him. If you really want to move in the right direction and have your path on the right way, you've got to move the way God wants. If you want to find your true being and who you really are, your real identity, it's not going to be done by just striving for it to try and perform and do all these great things. No, it's found only and solely in God, and he wants you to find that life in him. And I love how he quotes one of their own people doing it. You know, one of my heroes, Eugene Peterson, his first book was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And a lot of publishers, actually 25 publishers, rejected that book because they didn't like the title. And eventually one publisher did publish it. And, and Peterson said, here's why I titled it this. Because that phrase is actually a phrase from the famous atheist, Frederick Nietzsche. And I want to 
basically take this phrase that Nietzsche said that was trying to disprove God and make this to be the metaphor for which Christians for years and years can follow Jesus. I hope Nietzsche rolls in his grave if he ever found that out. I love that. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. This idea was taken in one sense. He says, now let me reinterpret this idea that you guys know in light of what's really good and true and beautiful, and that's our Lord. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring, which means if we're his offspring, we're his sons and daughters, and he is king, that makes us the sons and daughters of a king. And that is a great kind of thing to be if we're believers in him. And then he keeps going and he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a bold statement to make when you're in the defendant's seat. Could you imagine you're kind of put on trial and then everyone's trying to see if you're right or wrong and then you actually kind of flip it and say, hey, actually, you guys need to repent. And that really just means to change your way of living or thinking or being. Change the way you're living or what you're doing. He's telling them to do that. Obviously, they're getting a little upset at this point because he's calling into question their way of life and their style of choice for how they're living. And then he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. Now this would have been the final straw right there. The Greeks really believed that the soul was immortal, but the body was going to just decay. And in the biblical worldview, while the soul and the body are a little bit different, Ultimately, God's going to resurrect our bodies to be with him forever in this new heavens, new earth. It's kind of mysterious a little bit, but every part of matter actually matters. And so Paul is saying, just as Jesus bodily rose from the dead, so this is going to be the culmination of all things to come. And at that, they just had enough. Here's what they said, just the last part here in these verses. When they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They probably just laughed, just probably mocked Paul. What? That's just a ridiculous idea. But other people responded, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, some people, some interpreters actually say that that means we want to hear you again is that's it. You've kind of been dismissed here from the Areopagus. You can take your seat away from the, from the stone or the rock of shame, and you can be on your way. We've had enough. We're done listening to you. And then Paul says, the last part of this says, at that, Paul left the council. A few men, few people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. But all in all, it was probably one of the least responsive crowds to Paul's message, this gospel message of all the places he's gone. So what are some things that we can learn then? I kind of hinted at a few along the way. For us living in greater Boston, what, what does this story have to do with us? What's kind of the so what? How can we live our lives with greater courage, maybe with greater boldness because of this example that we found in Paul? Well, let me offer just four observations to your force tonight. And here's the first one. As we talked about, the Athenians were all about whatever was new. Whatever was new. Whatever was the latest idea. 
Can anyone resonate that that feels like what our world is a little bit alike too? You know, it's just like people are always after what's the latest, the newest thing. You know, uh, have you heard about this? You heard about that? You know, now that now the iPhone can do your job for you, I and mean, it's pretty exciting. You know, now. But we get obsessed with this, don't we? And I think so many of us get so obsessed all the time with seeing what's new, what's the latest, you know, what's, what's the score, what's going on. We perpetually do this, and it really takes us away from being present where we are. And I think when it takes us away from that, you know what happens to our lives? They kind of thin out. We kind of become shallower people. We can't sustain long concentration for thinking about matters that are of the utmost importance. It kind of hollows us out a little bit. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Richard Foster, in his book called The Celebration of Discipline, had one of the best opening lines to any book I have ever read. And here's what he says. What the world needs is not more intellectual people or more gifted people, but deep people. Let me say that again. What the world needs is not more intellectual people or more gifted people, but deep people. And he defines deep people as people whose lives are so rooted in Christ that they want to live their lives the way Jesus does. They're conscious of how God's at work, and they're constantly saying, Father, what is it that you want me to say right now? What is it right now in this very moment that you want me to do? That's what a deep life is all about, and that's what he argues is what the world needs. And I think that's what we can bring. Can we be deep people? And it starts by rooting our lives in God and what has in, in the past, some of the ancient ways that we can learn from scriptures and other, other sources. It isn't just new, but it's tried and it's true and it's good. And it will help us live the kind of lives that can actually deepen the lives of other people. So that's the first thing. What else does Athens have to do here with us in Boston? Well, secondly, Paul proclaimed the gospel message. And that's what he did. He proclaimed the gospel message. Throughout that passage, it kept saying that he... He was talking about Jesus, and he was talking about resurrection. Jesus and resurrection. And that's at the heart of the story. He says all this really hinges on the fact that Jesus not only died on the cross, but that he rose from the grave. That he rose from the grave. And for us as, as believers, or maybe you're on the fence, how we respond to the fact of whether or not Jesus died and, or rose from the dead is what the faith hinges upon. When I became a Christian when I was 15, that was the real question I was kind of wondering and, and asking. Because no historian would really argue that Jesus didn't live. I mean, everyone believes Jesus at least walked on this earth at some point or the other. The real question is, did Jesus actually rise from the grave? And one of the big arguments that people have is they say, well, probably the disciples just stole his body. Have anyone heard an argument like that? They just kind of stole his body. Some people even argue that Jesus actually wasn't really dead, like the cross didn't kill him, and he just appeared to be dead, and that's why it looked like he rose from the grave, which not very reasonable if you ask me, but probably the best argument to say that Jesus, his body was stolen. But when I really researched this, here's what I discovered. Why would somebody, like these disciples, they actually died for their faith. Why would somebody die for a lie that they know is actually a lie? There's a lot of us that die for things that we, I mean, a lot, I mean, not us here in this room, but there have been plenty of people who have died for lies that they thought were actually true. But who in their right mind would die for a lie that they actually knew was a lie? Because why would these disciples, if they hid the body, continue preaching this message, and then go to the point of death believing it's true? I mean, Peter crucified, was crucified upside down. 
You know, Paul, this guy we're talking about, he was beheaded there in Rome. These guys died tough deaths. But who would die for a lie that you knew was a lie? You would never do that. Nobody would do that. And that really helped convince me that what better explanation is there about Jesus' death and resurrection than the fact that he actually rose from the grave? And that's at the heart of what our gospel message is all about. It's, it's in history. It's proven. It's an event. And it should have implications in all of our lives. So we need to be knowing what the gospel message is and proclaiming that to people everywhere. That's at the heart of what Athens has to tell us here in greater Boston. Two more observations here. Paul was willing to do whatever it would take to go wherever God wanted him to go to help people know about Jesus. The text kind of alludes that Paul actually didn't even want to come to Athens. He didn't even want to be here. Believe it or not, he kind of wanted to go back to Thessalonica. That's the place where he was kind of had to run for his life to get out of there. But he wasn't with his traveling companions, uh, Timothy or Silas. And he was kind of all alone. I imagine him being really tired from all these travels. But God led him there, and so he was there. And he said yes to God, even though he probably realized, you know what? This is going to get tough. I'm probably going to get made fun of. I mean, these are some of the smartest people on the planet right here, and they're probably going to laugh at me. They're probably going to mock me. I'm probably going to look foolish. But they, he did not hold back from speaking out. I don't know if you guys heard, but we live next to a couple of the best universities in the world. Some of the smartest people in the world uh, move right here. You know, like I go on the T in Cambridge, you know, through Harvard Square or uh, MIT. I always imagine, you know, how many thousands of points someone's IQ is greater than mine, you know, sitting next to me. Not thousands, I'm just kidding. But, you know, probably a lot higher than mine by the fact I don't even know what the maximum number of IQ is, you know? <laughs> so, and these people are right here. And sometimes I think, how in the world could I ever convince them of something. I might look foolish. I probably can't argue as well as they can. But we can train ourselves up to know God's truth as best as possible. We can deliver in such a loving way and a kind way that really puts their best interest at heart. And we can say yes to God if he leads us to do that. And just imagine if these people were influenced, how many more folks around the world could be influenced by God and for him. So Paul was willing to put it all on the line. I think Paul embodied this one prayer I love to share with you. It's the Methodist Covenant Prayer. I've shared it, I think, here before. But here's what it says. I am no longer my own, Lord, but yours. So go ahead. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you brought low for you or exalted for you. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, most glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are mine and I'm yours. I'm yours. And I think Paul lived that prayer with a great fearlessness that I think we need to, to live out as well. And then lastly, last observation, Paul let go of the outcome. Paul let go of the outcome. When he probably went to Athens, he probably thought, you know what? I'm not going to be able to win a lot of these people over to Jesus, maybe. I mean, I'm persuasive. I know God's with me. But these folks are pretty set in their ways. I mean, they've built some huge temples and shrines for these other gods. So what can I maybe do? And by all accounts, Paul actually really wasn't that successful during his time there. And it says that a handful of people came to know him. No one was baptized, not until he travels to Corinth a little bit later on does anybody in this region of Greece get baptized. So it looked like things were kind of a failure in a lot of regards. And a lot of us, 
I think we don't share our faith or we don't tell other people about Jesus or befriend other folks because we just think it's worthless, you know? Who's going to sign up to, to do something where they know they're going to lose, right? I mean, I wouldn't do that. You know, that's why I only just play one form of basketball because I know I can beat a lot of people out there and I stay away from any other game, you know, because I like to win. So why would we do something where we want to lose? Paul Borthwick, who's one of our kind of a missionary friend here of Grace Chapel, is a pastor for a long time. He says that this culture here in greater Boston is an ABC culture. And he says that means anything but Christianity. It's like people are okay, whatever you believe, as long as it's not Christianity, you know? And then they are intolerant of you, even though they claim to be tolerant folks. You know, they're intolerant of anything except tolerance, you know? There's a lot of contradictions in there. But in anything but Christian culture or anything but Christianity kind of world, we get shy from this. But what's really fascinating, if you kind of read history after Paul had been here in Athens, here's a few things that happened. One, Paul's speech here at the Areopagus went down in some of their history books as being one of the greatest speeches ever delivered here. Even though it kind of laughed him off the stage almost, it was well regarded as an incredible and influential speech. Another thing, this guy Dionysius, who became a convert, people, history tells us that later on he became the bishop of Athens. This guy who's named here, but probably one of just a handful of folks who come to know Christ here, becomes a very influential person. What else is really striking? A few hundred years after this event happened, the Parthenon, that place where Athena was worshipped, was a place of Christian worship for a time. That The influence became that dramatic. And so Paul didn't worry about the outcome, if he made a lot of converts here or not, if he got laughed out or not. He was just faithful to God. Where is God calling you maybe to be faithful and just let go of the consequences of the outcome of how it turns out? One last story and we'll finish up. As you saw, one picture of Aaron and I there at the, at the Areopagus. We went there three years ago, and I, I am fascinated by going to places where the Bible happened uh, and where these things took place. And so we were coming in from this, uh, this port city uh, into Greece, and I'd taken a few years of, of you know, Greek when I was in college and then seminary. It's kind of the dead version of, of Greek called Koine Greek, but I thought, I, I know enough of this. I should be able to navigate us through their subway system. And so I'm looking up at this thing, thinking, okay, where do we get off here? And uh, Aaron's like, you figuring that out? I'm like, I think it's still Greek to me, you know? And, uh, and this, little, this, this little guy, this man was over here next to me, and I could kind of see his eavesdropping on our conversation and our cluelessness. And finally said, hey, you know, can I help you? And, um, and I said, yeah, you know, we want to go to, the, you know, Acropolis. What's the best stop to get off on? And, and this guy, he's like, oh, let me just talk for a little bit. And his name was George. He was a dentist. He was there in, in Athens. And, uh, and he was really concerned that we were going to get ourselves killed over there because this is the time when the political upheaval was really strong and really, really prominent. And so he said, hey, we'll come up here. And he actually walked us up from the subway to this spot. And he said, if you just take up this road right here, you'll get up there kind of the back way. Not too many people go this way. And then go here, come back down, get a, he uh, you know, a hero, and then get the heck out of here because it's really dangerous at uh, this time. So, so we go up this back way, and we're kind of going right through. Oh, this is the Agora. You can see it where all the, all the stores you know, would have been in things. We start taking these little little switchbacks up the hill, and we come up to this, this big rock, and we kind of look over, and it's this beautiful spot in the city. And then I find this little plaque on the side, and it says, this is the Areopagus. And they give this whole explanation about stuff happened here, and they give two little sentences about what happened here with Paul, just a small little bit. And if you have this picture, here's a picture of me standing, kind of where that would have been. 
And then right behind me, you can see the huge crowd of people going up to the Acropolis. That's with the, with the Parthenon. And it really struck me. Boy, hardly anybody's here at this site, and most people have no idea what happened right here. But everyone's going to the Parthenon. But if you think about the his, you know, history, how many people are worshiping the god of Athena anymore? Goddess of Athena. I've never met one. There probably are a few out there. But how many people are worshiping Jesus these days? How many billions of people? I took this picture of this little rock here on the Acropolis, right in focus, to say, from what happened here, which seems so insignificant now, it's what changed the world. And all that stuff that happened up there, it is long gone. It is faded from our memory because of the faithfulness of people like Paul who put it all on the line and said yes to God and no to what he wanted so that the world might know that Jesus is Lord and that he is king. That's what living on mission is all about with a fearlessness, with a great amount of courage to say, God, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will say whatever you want me to say. Whatever the consequence, Lord, it doesn't matter. I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm yours. And that's the kind of boldness, that's the kind of passion, that's the kind of life that we can live, that will give life to our neighbors. And our life, you know, we might never see greater Boston change, but if we keep planting seeds just like Paul did, putting our lives out in the line, hundreds of years from now, people might be saying a whole lot about what happened in these days that we found ourselves in. So my brothers and sisters, may we be faithful to our God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this stirring example of Paul who just did not concern himself with his own life and his own well-being, his own pleasure, but he found the greatest pleasure, the greatest delight in serving you and going where you wanted him to go, doing who, what you wanted him to do, being who you wanted him to be. Like those Athenians, he became like them. And I pray, God, that we can become like people here in Boston and, and the way that they would not negatively influence us, but that we could positively influence them for the sake of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would just have your way in us. And right now, just with every head bowed and every eye closed, God, I just want us to think, who is it that maybe we could share your love with this day? Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we just need to know and believe and trust that we are deeply loved by you and that you're not this God who's distant, who's abstract, who's impersonal, but a God who loves us, who we can know, a God who's near. And so, Lord, tonight I pray we would draw near to you and trust that you would draw near to us and each and every day, Lord, we could live with a greater sense of your presence in our lives. So, Lord, let us know what it is that you want us to say. Let us know what it is that you want us to do. And may we have the courage to follow after you, Jesus. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, the true God. Amen.